Hey there, listener. You have clicked on another episode of the spinoff show with the jock, also known as Anthony from the Jock and Nerd podcast. On this particular episode, I got on a guy that I've been wanting to have on for a bit. His name's August Ragone. August Ragone is the man when it comes to Godzilla and kaiju and Japanese sci-fi horror knowledge. This guy knows his shit. He is the two-time Rondo award-winning author of the highly regarded E.G. Subaraya, Master of Monsters, which is it's still available out on Amazon. So you can definitely check that out if you're interested in the, uh, the why and the how of how these monster movies were made and all by this one guy. We talk about the history of Japanese kaiju horror filmmaking, uh, especially in like the 40s, 50s, 60s. We also get into a little bit of the American perspective on horror and sci-fi filmmaking and how they purchased a lot of these Japanese films and then repurposed them for American audiences. We get into the current state of films. We get his thoughts on Avengers Endgame, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, a little bit of Star Wars talk. Suffice to say, this man knows a lot about a lot of random things. We even get into um, the history of horror hosts on TV and uh, random other stuff. He can go. He can talk. I let him do it. Now you're going to check it out. This is the Jock Spinoff Show. And August... Thanks for uh, being flexible with me and setting up a time to chat here Monday cool, thanks, evening. Anthony, yeah. No problem. Um, so I've been wanting to talk to you for a bit because, first off, John Bellotti Jr., who you might know, oh, yeah. um, hyped you up as a guy to talk to. And we've been trying to, me and Imran have been trying to like figure out a way to get you on Jock and Nerd, but I feel like this is actually a better avenue because Imran loves to talk and I think you like to talk as well. Yeah. <laughs> I think me and you, I think just us two is better than a uh, three or a foursome. Right, so. right. Well, but, you know, I get, I get, sometimes I'm, I can be wound up to be sort of the Kevin Smith of uh, Japanese nerd shit. So, <laughs> you know. Well, how, how would you describe yourself, August? I know, yeah. I know you're the, the award-winning uh, writer of uh, that book about Iji Tsuburaya. I'm a useless loser. But other than that, what else you got? <laughs> I'm just totally useless. I got a bunch of junk <laughs> in my head that I've been collecting since I was a kid, which is totally useless unless you're into what I'm into. And what are you into again? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I grew up with I grew up with things like The Outer Limits and horror movies on TV and going to theaters, you know, going to theaters as long as I can remember. Dragged in with my parents. Uh, everything kind of gravitated towards, you know, like most boys. And I'm glad to see girls are letting, you know, because parents don't let, let girls play with a lot of boy things. So I think it's just sort of sort of universally an interest in, in, in children to gravitate towards things like dinosaurs at some point. If they're interested in animals, then they see dinosaurs and they're like, oh, my God. So I went through that cycle, you know, spaceships and dinosaurs, you know, wasn't there a, wasn't there a Hernandez Brothers comic book besides Love and Rockets that had, or am I thinking about Cadillacs and dinosaurs? But anyway, you kind of gravitate towards that stuff. And, um, 
Then I started watching, you know, then I just noticed Japanese monster movies. And I became especially attracted to them for some reason. You know, I have memories going back as far as being three years old, like seeing Mothra, the 1961 original on television. The the OG Mothra? Oh, yeah. 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 Seeing that on television at like three years old or four years old. Must have been three. If I got my time framing right. I kind of denote in my my periods of my life by where I lived, (laughs) what houses we were in, you know, and I get a pretty, pretty good, you know, bearing on that from, from just that. So, uh, you know, and I sort of just started strangely being drawn more toward, towards the, uh, Japanese monster movies. And it wasn't an intellectual, (laughs) it wasn't an intellectual choice (laughs) and I can't really quantify what drew me. And, um, I just started seeing more of them and I preferred them. And then as I got older, you know, when I realized that these are movies made in a country called Japan, then I started categorizing them and looking specifically for them and more of them. And uh, the offshoot of that was uh, an obsession with Japanese culture and everything Japanese. So you've basically become an American Japanese person? I'm just a weirdo, that's all. Or just a weirdo? Just a serious... Weirdo, but there's a lot of other weirdos like me, so yeah, I don't feel so bad now. But uh, it's not it's 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 almost like more acceptable now with, with oh, yeah. the rise of uh, the superheroes and all that stuff. Like being being weird is kind of accepted, right? And uh, well, you know, it's it's become what it is, uh, and we'll see how long that carries over. You know, in in future with the culture, because yeah. these things change. Because you know, there were times like in the fifties. Uh, where there were uh, science fiction films that, that were released that had big ballyhoo. Um, and that means where, you know, they were the whole giant theater, like, you know, the, the old big theaters mm-hmm. would have the entire front of the theater, not only the marquee, but the entire facade of the theater, like decorated with giant billboard, cut out billboards, things like Day the Earth Stood Still, mm-hmm. you know, where you could see it in New York, one of the theaters on... 42nd Street in, in 1950, 51, you could see that marquee from like blocks away. You could see Michael Rennie and Gort and Peggy Neal, or Patricia Neal rather, you know, mm-hmm. blocks away. Um, and then that stopped, you know, that cycle ran out because you had the big ballyhoos for, for movies like Day the Earth Stood Still, War of the Worlds in 53. And then there were the cheapies, you know, the movies that were, that were cranked out. Um, and you know, the, uh, universal pictures did a lot of those and universal was sort of the, uh, the redheaded stepchild of the, the motion picture studios in those days of the big, like MGM Paramount and so on. What, what years was this? Uh, that was like pretty much since universal's inception. <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. Universal was considered sort of like the redheaded stepchild for a long time. And it, the company was always on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, even with their know, like movie monsters and all that stuff. Yeah. Or was that like, yeah. you know, it, you know, after, after the forties, you know, they almost went bankrupt every couple of years. Uh, you know, for an example, and horror movies kept saving universal. Right. And it was, uh, universal picked up, uh, horror of Dracula from hammer and curse of Frankenstein. And, uh, they released curse of Frankenstein first. And then Horror of Dracula, I think the following year. 
Uh, and both of those movies, like especially Horror of Dracula, like saved Universal because mm-hmm. it made so much bleeding money. Uh, and then a couple of years later, Universal again is like kind of teeter-tottering. And then they release in 1963, they released King Kong versus Godzilla, which was the big hit of the summer of 63. And that saved, came out through Universal? Yeah. And oh, saved okay. Universal again. So, you know, Universal was always kind of like the laughing stock of the other studios. You know, MGM did big giant productions. You had Paramount, you know, uh, and 20th Century Fox. And uh, and they all kind of just chuckled at Universal. Mm-hmm. You know, Universal was the guy that got kicked around by them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, looking back at those films, you know, growing up watching monster movies on TV, you know, the Universal horror films were great. And um, they're, they're considered, you know, benchmark classics, mm-hmm. uh, the films from the 30s to the 40s. And, you know, and then you have to kind of like dovetail the creature from the Black Lagoon in there from 54. Uh, but Universal was kind of like kicked around <laughs> yeah. a little bit. But people, you know, audiences love their movies, but the other studios kind of look down at them. I think no it was kidding. sort of I like, no idea. I think the descending order was sort of like it was MGM, you know, I think it was MGM 20th Century Fox, Paramount. Someone will probably like complain and, and correct me, but no, that's what I want a correction. I want the facts. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm a big you know, a big proponent of, give me the factual information. And, you know, I learned something today, you know, instead of going like, Oh, you can't tell me that. <laughs> um, let me look that up on Wikipedia and I'm going to challenge you online. Uh, right. And then you had, then you had like, uh, you know, uh, then you had like Columbia pictures. Uh, and then you had universal and Columbia kind of got, you know, kicked around a little bit, but Columbia was still a more stable studio than, then universal. universal no kidding. and then you had no, all yeah. the other guys yeah and then you had all the other guys after that you know you had like all the all the really uh the the, the cloak and dagger companies you know mm-hmm. prc and 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 so on that made the really really low budget movies for public studios um rko was somewhere in the middle there you know king kong yeah RKO, right but you know they went bankrupt by by the late 50s they just were like yeah they're gone just couldn't cut it anymore. In fact, uh, dovetailing a Japanese thing in here, is, uh, MGM was supposed to, uh, MG, not MGM, I'm sorry, but uh, RKO picked up the Mysterians from, oh, yeah. ni- okay. from 1957. And uh, we're going to release it in the United States. And usually when those things were picked up by an American company, the Japanese films, they were released within a year or so of their Japanese release or whenever they were made available. Um, and the film didn't uh, open in the States until 59. You know, it was like two years after it was made. It was because it was picked up by RKO. Uh, RKO had it dubbed, um, did a, you know, engineered an ad campaign, but they couldn't release it. They had, they had so little left that they couldn't even release the film. And that was uh, picked up by uh, MGM. Mm-hmm. And MGM just, like, you know, took the same ad campaign and just pasted MGM over the RKO stuff, <laughs> you know. In fact, you can still find, if you're a collector of movie posters and, and uh, that kind of uh, uh, movie memorabilia press kits and stuff like that, there are, like, two distinct press kits for the Mysterians, which are the same, pretty much the same exact press kit, or press book, rather, uh, 
that just has MGM Presents instead of RKO Presents. One has RKO Presents, the other has MGM Presents. No kidding. So those got, were flo- those have been floating around. I found those when I was a teenager and went, oh, and I guess RKO was supposed to release this, and MGM actually was the one, were the ones who actually released it. Mysterians is one of the only one of the movies I actually have never seen as far as kaiju or Japanese movie monster movies ever released here. Like I've well, seen Godzilla, Rodan, mm-hmm. Mothra, Varon, but Mysterians never never got around to Mysterians. Right. Well, you know, you know when that was released uh, in the states, it became a huge hit in the New York area because that's where it was. They used to release films by you know by region first, and a lot of films mm-hmm. uh, would be open. They didn't do fourteen hundred theaters nationwide all in the same day. That rarely happened. You know, films would be would open by region. Why was and that? Then, and then move across the country. Uh, that's to save money. You know, okay. they uh, they didn't have to make as many prints, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and those prints could do what they called a roadshow, which it would same print traveled around the country. So you didn't strike prints for every single theater that were booking that film. Mm-hmm. So the the prints would travel, hence roadshow. Got it. That makes um, sense. And so when it opened up, I think uh, Mysterians opened up at Lowe's on 42nd and... Um, they said it was busting all the records. In fact, it's in a copy of a copy of Box Office Magazine from 59 uh, that I could look up for you if you want. That, uh, you know, has like the, 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 the box office numbers and, and how well huh. it was doing. It was a full page place ad saying basically in a trade magazine, a, a motion picture exhibitor, uh, which is a movie that would be a movie theater owner mm-hmm. uh, uh, magazine. That say you really need this film. It's Boppo box office. Look how much it did in New York. It's going to kill when you open it up in your theater. Mm-hmm. And that's the way they used to sell these films. Um, not just Jap- any film, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when Mysterians opened up, it was a big hit. Now it was a you know basic. It's an a, it's a you've read about it, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So you know it's an a- alien invasion movie, and. Um, like a lot of the films that were coming out in the 50s with the exceptions of things like, you know, This Island Earth or, or The War of the Worlds or Day the Earth Stood Still, a couple other flicks. You know, most of them were very low-budget affairs. Maybe you got to see a flying saucer. Maybe the flying saucer wasn't that cool looking when you finally got the movie or the alien, uh, you know, was really kind of funky looking. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the movies were... I'm sorry. I said maybe a little disappointing in terms. Yeah, of disappointing. Uh, maybe you know uh, the films were in black and white, even though there's exceptional ones like uh, Day the Earth Stood Still. Mm-hmm. Ray Harryhausen did the effects for that. Keanu uh, Reeves. No. I'm oh, did I did I just say the wrong title? Did I say Earth versus the Flying Saucers? No, you didn't. You didn't. Yeah. Okay. See, I said that, and I went. I said something wrong. <laughs> uh, but uh, unlike and unlike Kevin Smith, I'm not stoned. <laughs> I have. I don't have that excuse. So you have no good excuse. Okay, no, there you I go. have no good excuse. Um, <laughs> anyway, so you know, this was a full color, widescreen movie, and widescreen cinema, cinemascope movies were uh, the big thing in the fifties to try to get people away from their television sets because Hollywood was having a problem. Uh, you know, because most movies were shot what they called Academy ratio, which is more or less a square picture. Mm-hmm. which is pretty much your picture tube on your TV. So they said, well, how can we get more people? Let's figure out ways, even though they've experimented with te- Technicolor 
uh, as far back as the 20s, and they were trying to do widescreen pictures earlier, you know, as well. Uh, in the 30s, they just, you know, couldn't develop something that uh, that was viable at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so they come out, you know, they start doing things in Technicolor. They try to make the color look even more saturated than natural life. So it would just, like, assault your eyes when you're in the movie house. And then making these movies panoramic and, mm-hmm. and widescreen uh, was something you couldn't get on television. It's something that we kind of take for granted today with widescreen televisions and HD and, you know, 4K and all that stuff. Uh, but back in the 50s, you had a little little box with a screen that was maybe about 10 inches, you know. Right. And uh, your reception depended on, you know, which way you pointed your antenna and how far away the broadcast station was. So, you know, your picture could be iffy sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it was hard to get people out of their living rooms. So that they, you know, that was killing movies at the time. So um, they developed these systems. So uh, in Japan, Toho followed suit. They wanted to do widescreen because that's what America was doing. And Toho Studios was the biggest studio in Asia at the time. Um, and so they said, we're going to invest in this and we're going to do this in color. And uh, the first color uh, science fiction fantasy movie that Toho did was Rodan. But that was in the... Uh, Academy aspect ratio. And so with the Mysterians was their next color uh, widescreen, their, their first widescreen color science fiction fantasy film. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge hit. It was, I mean, people in Japan, you know, memor- you know, you know, were uh, blown away by it. Uh, people over here, especially kids, were like really taken with it because it kind of delivered on all the promises in the Ballyhoo and the posters, you know. The thing with those low-budget movies, it would promise, like, you know, see the most spectacular movie ever made, you know. And uh, you really didn't get that when you went and saw the movie, you know. You didn't quite get what was promised. And the Mysterians kind of delivered. You had these aliens. They had this this dome that they built on Earth that they had, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And uh, uh, you had giant robots. And you had, you know, Earth. Mogura. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, that's correct. And yep. like Earth made super weapons, like super science. And it was just this big all out war picture, you know, Earth versus the flying saucers, basically. And mm-hmm. uh, But it was like, I mean, a fully scaled military assault. So it was pretty spectacular at the time. So uh, people were kind yep. of blown away by it. It came to the States. People loved it in the States, of course, but you had critics. You know, people lined up for these movies back in the 50s when they were the big deal movies. They got the big press and, you know, uh, and, uh, but critics, you know, still were, film critics liked real movies. Wow, they didn't like <laughs> they the did, fantasy stuff? Well, they didn't like genre films, uh, you know. Okay. So, you know, the Western had to be like an all-star Western with top-name actors. If it was just what they used to call, and the critics used to, you know, have different terms for, like, it was just kind of like ground out uh, uh, westerns, like what they used to call program pictures. The studios called them programmers because they followed a basic formula and they just made tons of them, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and they would be called odors. Odors? Yeah, O-A-T-E-R-S. Like okay. oats. Okay. You know, because horses eat oats. Oh, uh, okay. So they were called odors. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, science fiction pictures were just called science fiction pictures. Uh, but, uh, 
eventually, because of the low budget nature of a lot of them, they uh, kind of looked down upon. Was um, when Godzilla first came over? Was that well received here in America? That was really well received by the public. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, some critics said, you know, this this was terrible, or you know, this is just another one of these god awful monster pictures. And they didn't care. They weren't necessarily prejudiced against the film itself or the way it was executed. It was just the fact that it was a monster picture that they were already wrote it off hmm. before they reviewed it. Um, and then there were reviews that were really positive, you know, like Variety uh, magazine, the, the big showbiz paper. You know, they gave it a very positive review when it when it opened. And, and they were said, reviewing the the American version, right? Oh yeah, Burr. of course, yeah. yeah. And they gave it a review that you know said some of these, uh, some of the special effects were startling, um, and uh, they gave it a fairly positive review. So even a, a so-so or a positive review mm-hmm. <laughs> would be considered like a monumental triumph for one of these pictures <laughs> uh, at that time, because you know you you really was hard to get positive reviews for sci-fi horror and fantasy films. Okay. How did um so Mysterians did did well with the public over here? How did like Rodan and Mothra how those Okay, well, do okay. Well? So so I'll preface that with Godzilla. When Godzilla opened, sure. it just blew away box office records on the East Coast. Again, that was one of those things where it opened on the East Coast first and spread across the country. Um it broke all kinds of records. And in fact, uh, one of Godzilla's earliest fans who became a famous person was uh, Martin Scorsese. Okay, yeah. And he used to deliver papers when he was a kid, and when Godzilla opened, you know, uh, he would go deliver his papers as fast as he could so he could get his money right away, and then he would get across town to go see it again. <laughs> really? Damn. Yeah, he's, he's, actually, he's actually quoted as doing that, you know. That, uh, that he was just so obsessed with this movie, with the original Godzilla film, he just went and saw it multiple times when it played in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the reason that movie became such a hit, and then that created a market in the United States for the Japanese monster pictures, which were also popular in Japan. So Toho started making these movies uh, as a response to their homegrown audience, but you had an American interest that they were also catering to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and sometimes, uh, some of these pictures were pre-bought. So Toho, like one of these, one of the American studios would go to Toho and go, what do you got? And they go, well, our next picture is going to be this. And we're going to start, we're going to start shooting in three months. And then they go, we will buy that right now. (laughs) They would buy it without even seeing any film or anything. Right. Like, okay, we're in on this. Right. So uh, Rodan was one of the first movies that, because Godzilla opened in 56, you know, stomped all over America that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so other people immediately started scrambling for the next Godzilla. Because if you bought a picture from Japan, you could buy them cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be a lot more cost effective to buy these movies than to produce one in the States. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they would... they had people just jumping at these films and they, these, these guys called these film entrepreneurs called the King brothers picked up Rodan. And, uh, the interesting thing about that is they got a work print from Toho. The film hadn't been finally cut for Japan yet. 
and they got a work print. And so there are some scenes and shots or takes in the American version that aren't in the Japanese and vice versa. Really? Okay. So it's an interesting, you know, uh, a thing that they did. They, they, they trimmed the film down a little bit. They added a prologue that was felt that was needed in American films at the time where the atomic bomb, you know, it's like one of those things you have to oh, do yeah, yeah. the whole atomic thing at the front of the movie. But uh, Rodan became, uh, I think Rodan was the second Japanese monster movie released in the States. And that came out in 57. And bo- according to Box Office Magazine, again, the same uh, Exhibitors Trade magazine, uh, listed it as the uh, highest grossing science fiction film of 1957 in the United States. Really? Holy crap. Yeah. It had the, it had the most rentals. Because, again, it was a color picture. Right. Which, you know, when kids heard, this movie's in color, you know, mm-hmm. like black and white was already getting tired, you know, get tiring with people. It was the common. It was the status quo. So someone had a color picture. You wanted to go see that, you know, and then you determined whether it was awful or not at, after the fact that you, you were, it was like 3D now, you know, like, oh, 3D. Although 3D now is almost getting played out. Yeah, it's pretty passe now. But, yeah. but you know, the same, it's the same. It was a gimmick. Color was right. a gimmick in a way. And so, uh, you know, people ran to that movie. Um, Mothra was a film that was uh, was pre-sold to Columbia Pictures. Uh, Columbia Pictures picked up... Uh, Columbia Pictures at the time would do three-picture deals. And they also reached out to uh, Hammer and said, you know, uh, Hammer uh, Studios in England. And they said, mm-hmm. well, we've got these, you know, these next couple of pictures we're going to do are these. And then, uh, you know, Columbia, we'll take that film, we'll take that film, and, you know, we'll help you produce that one. And we'll just throw the money at you so we get the exclusive rights to it, and that'll help you produce the picture, level up the quality. And so they weren't technically co-productions because Columbia Pictures wasn't really sticking their fingers in it. Sometimes they'd get, you know, other studios did this as well with Hammer and and Toho. Uh, It wasn't like they said, well, you know, give us the script and we're going to approve the script ourselves. They just said, make the movies and give them to us. You know, Mm -hmm. we'll worry about, if there's anything objectionable in the film, when we get it, we'll just cut it out, <laughs> you know, or we'll do, we'll change it. Right. So they, they bought, uh, the H man, which was, uh, a 1958 film, uh, and invested in battle in outer space, which was a 1959 film. And the third part of their three picture deal was Mothra. And so Toho, uh, had already made the H man. So that was a very Japanese homegrown film set in suburban Tokyo and with the underworld in it, a Japanese uh, mob and and drug trade and a, a radioactive sludge monster. <laughs> or, or not really <laughs> sludge, but a, but a liquid, a liquefied, globby type uh, monster. Uh, humans uh, was actually like a Japanese fishing trawler caught in an American atomic test area uh, their, their reaction to the nuclear fallout is they uh, dissolve and they become this intelligence really? that uh, starts, it has a homing instinct and it comes back to Japan. They dissolve into some like green goo or something, huh? Right. Yeah. So, you know, the, Columbia had that. There were some, a, a couple little racy things in there because the standards at the time in, in America for films and especially for like, you know, they were, they weren't marketing some of these films strictly to children, but they would get, uh, uh, they, you know, they, they, there were certain standards that, you know, you had these, some of the movies set in a cabaret, 
and uh, the girls' outfits were sometimes a little too skimpy that were allowed in American films at the time. So they just cut it? So they cut some things out or, or worked around it mm-hmm. um, or Zoom-boxed some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it pretty much got over here without too much alterations. And then, you know, Battle in Outer Space Toe was kind of doing a follow-up to the Mysterians. And when Columbia said, we'll take it, uh, Toho up the ante because um, they had money to, more money to work with, even though they were doing, you know, pretty much throwing money at these movies at the time, um, Toho was. Uh, so they took that extra money and they said, well, you know, let's go round up a international cast, you know. Mm-hmm. So they went around, they incorporated a lot of uh, Caucasian uh, faces, uh, non-Asian faces into the movie as well. To kind of like, so it would be a better sell overseas. Sure. And with Mothra, you know, they, Columbia just said, we will, what are you doing? We'll just take it. And, uh, <laughs> and here's money to do it. Um, and the original ending was going to be sort of this, uh, how familiar are, are you with Mothra? Oh, very familiar. Okay. So the, the original end of the picture was a lot smaller. And I don't mean that in a low budget way. Uh, it was just, uh, they already had the spectacle of Mothra destroying Tokyo. So that was sort of that, that, that was the big spectacle, uh, sequence of the movie, which takes up a lot of the running time, mm-hmm. uh, towards the end in that third act. Well, uh, Columbia Pictures said, we want to make this movie bigger, better. The original ending, uh, that didn't make it into the final print was that, Nelson kidnaps the girls and he, you know, in, at the end of the American, the, the version that we all see now, uh, Japanese and American version, uh, you know, Nelson, the bad guy, right? Yep. Okay. So Nelson's this, this, this bad guy. If you don't know what I'm talking about out there, I'm sure you could wiki it. Yeah. Just wiki it. <laughs> he kidnaps these little girls. Yeah. Yeah. He's like an international jewel thief. He's kind of like a bad Indiana Jones. Yeah. He's kind of like the other guy, the, uh, the, 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 the Belloc. He's kind of like Belloc. He goes around and steals sure. artifacts and treasures and stuff like that. So, and, and the treasure in this is these two little mini twins that sing. Yeah. Yeah. That are the right. guardian priests, the priestesses of Mothra. Right. Um, so he snatches them and puts them in a show like Carl Denham. It's kind of an inversion of, I call Mothra an inversion of King Kong. It, it really is actually when you think you know, about it. And, uh, and so he kidnaps the girls, put them on, puts them in a show. Uh, then they find out that the, there's a connection. The authorities find out that there's a connection between the girls and Mothra. And the reason why Mothra is coming to Tokyo is because the girls are in Tokyo, blah, blah, blah. And the girls can't stop the telepathic connection between the two. So, uh, Nelson decides to bail, and in the uh, the final film you see, he goes back to his country, uh, uh, which is a hybrid of Russia and the United States, because they didn't want to blame one country in this film. <laughs> the Toho, the Japanese were like, well, we don't want to say it's America, we don't want to say it's Russia conducting these tests, these nuclear tests. So what they call it, Rolisika? Yeah, Rolisica. Rolisica, yeah. Which is uh, a portmanteau of the Japanese pronunciations of America, which is Ameri- America, yeah. and Russia, which is Russia. <laughs> so, Rolisica. Rolisica, okay. So, they came up with Rolisica. And so, Nelson takes off to there, and then Mothra follows him. And this, the, big, the big city, the big New York, San Francisco, is a New York-San Francisco hybrid. 
right. called Newkirk City. Yep. And so Mothra comes in and, and wrecks more stuff. So it's got even more spectacle on top of spectacle with this big finale with the winged Mothra destroying everything now that it's hatched out of its cocoon. Well, uh, that this is a long story. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, the long and short of it is that uh, the original ending was uh, Nelson takes off in a Cessna instead of escaping on, you know, he, he gets on a, you know, Japan, American Airlines or a Pan Am jet or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and has to smuggle through the airport with a fake passport. Uh, in the original ending, which they shot, uh, Nelson uh, was the first thing they shot. Honda uh, went on location to go shoot uh, the ending first uh, because it was a, a volcano near a volcano range. Uh, on, I think it was on Mount Mihara. Uh, where Godzilla falls into the crater at the end of Godzilla 1985. Yeah. Trivia, trivia, trivia. It's it's considered part of the Tokyo, uh, uh, metro, not metropolitan area, but the Tokyo prefecture. Uh, uh, and so it's an island off the shore of Tokyo. So they go to shoot location there, and uh, Nelson is supposed to take off in this little Cessna with the girls and his one henchman. And uh, the plane isn't fueled or something, and it crashes. Uh, they're actually supposed to be in a northern region. They get as far up as Hokkaido, which is far up north in Japan. And I guess with the thing that Nelson would run away to try to get out of Japan and hop over to Russia with the girls or whatever. And so play, he dishes the plane. They get out. Mothra's following. Mothra lands and flaps her wings, and Nelson flies off a cliff and dies. <laughs> and pretty much... Right behind, you know, uh, Nelson are the main characters. So they witness this whole thing when Mothra lands and, and, and causes uh, indirectly the death of, of Nelson. And mm-hmm. the girls are retrieved and happy ending. Well, they film this first. Yep. And then they come back from location, Honda and company. And the front office goes, oh, well, we're going to scrap that ending. And they're like, what? It's like, well, we got a order from Columbia Pictures to do a different ending. And so they want this big spectacle ending with, a, you know, a whole another city getting wrecked. But they want, like, an American, a Western city to get destroyed. Oh, jeez. Right. So um, <laughs> there was part of the original short story that was made. It was they, they took it originally out of the script, uh, out of the uh, not out of the script necessarily, but I mean, out of the. Uh, all the preliminary stuff they wrote, there was going to be an attack on New Wagon City. <laughs> oh, wow. What a great name there. Yeah, they're going like, you know, America, cowboys, Indians, and wagons, <laughs> wagon trains. Um, and, of course, like uh, that was in one of the, that was, I think, in the uh, treatments, and which were probably sent to Columbia. And Columbia goes, you're doing a smaller ending. Why? We want this ending. Here's the money. I think it was uh, one of the uh, Columbia producers uh, named William Schwartz. And uh, he went and just said, here, take this money, and we want a big finish. So then they had to reshoot it, huh? Or so, it. yeah, they, they just basically had to reshoot an ending. And then Super Aya, who had already wrapped, I think, did he already wrap? No, he didn't wrap the special effects work, but he was given like a, uh, I'm going off the top of my head here. So when he heard that they had to construct more sets and keep, working on this movie because they had other movies lined up. Mm-hmm. A.G. Superaya, the special effects director, like flipped his lid. You know, we're going to have rare 
flipping his lid. You know, he's like, what do you mean we have to build a whole city set? And and uh, they begrudgingly had to do it at the bequest of Columbia Pictures. And I think, it, I think it actually makes the film a lot better. I like the film. I mean, I thought the film was actually pretty good. I enjoyed uh, it. It's one of my, I think it's, uh, it's one of my top favorites from that period. Now, did they know that they were creating this eventual shared universe when they were making Godzilla and then Rodan and Mothra? No. They, they, just, they were making one-offs at the time. Yeah, they were just going, like, we're going to make these pictures. And then it became this natural thing of, like, uh, let's, team, let's team things up. Right. Let's have this guy punch this guy. You know, what if Superman fought Spider-Man? Right. You know, and then we, they were doing all this in the same studio so they could easily answer that question. Yeah, they could just do whatever they, they pretty much wanted. And I think a part of that actually did not. They weren't just sitting around going, well, uh, let's have Mothra and Godzilla fight. Mm-hmm. You know, it was pretty much out of um, necessity. Uh, as they were getting more orders for these pictures, um, there was like, I think, you know, the next, they, they did, uh, you know, a follow-up to the first Godzilla film with uh, Godzilla Raids again in 1955, right. which, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an okay, it's a, little, it's, a little, it's a little shaky. They were just trying something different at that point. They go, let's just try something different with each picture. I like the fight scenes, but the overall story is kind of... Well, you know, they, again, they were experimenting mad. with formula and seeing what they could what they could do and, and mixing and matching directors. Like so, instead of naturally putting Honda in charge of the sequel, they said, "Let's see how another director will do." Mm. And then, of course, they went, "Well, Honda keeps hitting Pater, so we're just going to he's going to get all of them, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much all of them." Unless he and at one point they're producing so many fantasy pictures, you know, that they couldn't uh, have Honda direct every one. They brought in other people to take over, sort of like. You know, the lesser films, like, they would go, like, okay, we're going to do a man, uh, a movie about a, a man who teleports uh, electronically and then goes around the country and uh, killing people, going through the phone lines, you know. Uh, and uh, that was that was the secret of the Telegian. And they went, well, we're also making another picture that same year, you know, we're in this, you know, in this, in this uh, production year, we're going to make this movie about a man who's... Uh, transformed into a uh, a vaporous substance, and he can reconfigure himself and Which movie reintegrate is himself. The Human Vapor from 1960. Oh God! And uh, the human and the secret of the Telegian was 1960. And they said, "Well, you know, this is going to be the stronger picture. We're going to put the bigger stars in this. Uh, we're going to put the more money in this. So we'll have Honda pick up this one, and we'll give this one has a little more of a lurid action." Uh, thing to it, so we'll give it to our action uh, crime guy Jun Fukuda, and we'll let him direct that one. So um, they did that a lot. So you had, you know, when after they did uh, the Godzilla raids again in '55, you know, which did good but didn't do great, and then Rodan came out and was a huge hit. The next year, um, they had another film come out towards the end of '55 uh, called The Half Human. It was an abominable snowman movie. Um, and they went, well, okay. And Honda directed the uh, abominable snowman movie. Is that, a, um, is that a kaiju film or is it? Well, he's he's a, an abominable snowman. He's not like a giant he's city crushing guy. Okay. He's, he's just a big, you know, like he's like the traditional abominable snowman kind of pitcher. And, and Honda and, and Subaraya worked on that one. Um, 
And uh, so they kind of gave Godzilla a rest because they did, you know, uh, they did Rodan, which is a big hit. They moved on with Mysterians, you know, and then it was a couple more years later. They said, you know, maybe we should Godzilla kind of capture the imagination of the general public and the media because he keeps being brought up, Mm -hmm. you know, like they go with like a tough guy. Who do you think you are, Godzilla? You know, right. Uh, Like even movies like in 1960, there was a movie in 19, I believe it's 1960. I'm sure someone will correct me. Uh, made by one of the other Japanese studios, Nikatsu, uh, which is called Danger Pays. Did you put, you put this in your book, right? About this, this what I'm telling you right now? Yeah. No. This wasn't in the book? Okay. No, no. You, were, you had talked about Godzilla knockoffs in the right. book. Right. Well, well, yeah. There was, well, not really, you know, the, the knockoffs, but um, that, you know, people kept bringing up his name in, gotcha. in, okay. in the media. Like, people kept referencing Godzilla. You know, like your mother looks like Godzilla, you know, right. you know, people are capping on each other, you know, comedians would use Godzilla as a punchline joke. Um, and then there's this movie from like, I think 1960. Now this is between Godzilla raids again in 1955 and the next Godzilla picture didn't open in Japan until 62, which is King Kong versus Godzilla. Um, so this is 1960. And there's a, a movie by another studio, not Toho Studios, Nikatsu Studios, which was known for a lot of action movies. And they did this crime movie called – it's a crime comedy. It's great. It's fantastic. It's hilarious. And it's very, very violent and bloody um, at the same time, which is a really strange juxtaposition, but it's just awesome. Um, and you could watch that on Amazon Prime Video. Danger <laughs> Pays, 1960. There's uh, a scene in the movie where – there's three main characters are both they're all three of them are criminals. They're arguing about this counterfeit money. And um, one of them says, you know, uh, you're you're mean like Godzilla. And so that's another studio referencing a different studio's character while there was no current movies being made at all. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. So Godzilla really captured the Japanese imagination uh, the public's imagination and uh, and uh, pop the pop culture imagination. So Toho said, everybody keeps, we should just bring them back. Let's do another picture. And they were looking for a vehicle, and that's a whole other story with this guy, John Beck, in Hollywood, who was a former Universal producer, um, who uh, fell into talking uh, to um, Willis O'Brien, who was the effects guy for King Kong, and Yep. Son of Kong and Mighty Joe Young and, and so on. And he was trying to develop another Kong picture called King Kong versus Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. I remember reading, reading right. that. And the long and short of that, somebody could go, like, if you're listening and going, Frankenstein, how could Kong fight Frankenstein? And it was going to be an, a, a, a monster stitched together from the parts of big African big game animals. That would have been yeah, so that's that's the Frankenstein part. Of <laughs> anyway, they were going to you know, uh, and Carl Denham's involved again. <laughs> Carl Denham's trying to have a comeback, and he uh, promotes a boxing match between the two. What? Of course, now people okay, are going really well, he, going crazy. Yeah, Kong died in thirty three. What happened? And then they Willis O'Brien worked out a thing where it's like uh, you know he didn't really die; he was just really messed up. You know. Uh, sort of like King Kong lives, you know. Right. Oh, yeah. Same thing. It's like he's not dead. We just put an artificial heart in him. 
he's messed up. We're <laughs> gonna yeah, we're gonna stick this thing in his chest and re- resuscitate him. Right. So they, he had this idea, and Willis O'Brien couldn't sell it to anyone. And John Beck, who was this like scheming little guy at a universal, you know, former former Universal guy trying to hit it up on his own, uh, said, "Hey, let me run with this idea and talk to people." Well, eventually, he basically stole the idea and took it to Toho. And Toho had offices in Los Angeles. Uh, and they said, wow, that would be great. You, got, you can get the rights to King Kong. Then we could have King Kong versus Godzilla. And mm-hmm. A.G. Subaraya, you know, that was his favorite movie. That's King Kong. Um, and that's what launched him into uh, wanting to do special effects after being a cinematographer for, you know, uh, two decades. Um, and so, uh, why didn't they nail the suit though? And King, why, why is the suit not great? In that well, movie? that's part of the John Beck problem. And, okay. uh, John Beck comes in and says, you know, he's negotiating everything. Uh, and he goes, well, I'll have universal release it. You know, he still had his peeps at universal and he said, I can get Toho to produce this picture and I'm going to be the producer distributor and I'll just sub license it to you. Universal. Uh-huh. You don't have to put up any production money. I'll get Toho to put up all the money and I'll, I'll sell it to you. You know? Mm-hmm. So Universal got inter, you know international rights into perpetuity, which means Toho has no claim to this day unless Universal says, we'll give it back to you. Which and, isn't going to happen anytime soon. Which right? isn't going to happen. Right. Because, you know, you have to hire lawyers to work all that out and Universal doesn't want to spend that money. Nobody wants to spend that money in Hollywood mm-hmm. for unnecessary film that's fifty years old. They don't care. They really don't care. Mm-hmm. It's just something they pull out of the vault every once in a while and put it out on the latest home media, and that's all they really care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Beck engineers this whole thing, then tells Toho they have to go to RKO. Uh, the remnants of RKO through I think Universal was managing that. At the time, I may be wrong. Somebody will probably correct me. That's fine, but I'm just going off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah, we're, we're we're just talking out. We're just talking casually. Talking out loud. Yeah. So you know, you had you had this this whole thing set up, and uh, and and uh, <laughs> Toho's planning. Meanwhile, Toho's planning on make dumping all this money into it, and they're going to film on location all the island scenes in Sri Lanka. Oh, yeah. So they're trying that. to rearrange all this stuff. They're going to go film on location. There's not going to be any indoor sets unless it's supposed to be an indoor shot, like a building or a house or an apartment or whatever. And they're just going to lay out all this money to make this movie. So they're already, you know, working on sets and they're already building stuff and they're making the new Godzilla suit and they're building the miniature sets and working on all that. And John Beck comes to Toho and goes, okay, well, um, now you guys got to pay the rights for King Kong. And they went, what? Oh, no. It said, well, if you want to make this picture, you got to pay for Kong. We're not paying for it. I'm not paying for it. And so it was the equivalent at that time of a million dollars to hire Kong. Yikes. For the film. (laughs) So there went a large part of the budget. So Sri Lanka was out. Gone. And that's why the Kong suit looks ratty. They just didn't have the money to, to, to do an elaborate Kong suit. Wow. And some people could say, well, they could have just made anything in the shop. Well, then you don't know how movies are made. I'm sorry. You don't know how movies are produced and how things are allotted. 
and how budgets have to be adhered to. And when the producers go, I don't want you spending another dime. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to buy more latex in yak hair. You know, just stuck. Just make a gorilla suit and we're going to go. We got to make this picture. I mean, it's still an all time picture. It's just there's there's a little there's the the Kong suits a lot to left to be desired. Right. But, you know, at the same time, you know, you have then movies come out, you know, around that same time period. You know, you got, you know, the more the the, 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 the sort of stereotypical uh, gorilla suits and the gorilla guys at that time. You had movies like Gorilla at Large coming out in the late 50s, or mm-hmm. mid, mid, late, mid, late, early mid 50s and uh, you know, early 60s. You had Conga, you know, which is just mm-hmm. basically a guy in that same suit from <laughs> Gorilla at Large. And you sometimes see him in the Kong, the, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in the Three Stooges shorts. <laughs> you know, it's the same gorilla guy, you know, in the same gorilla suit. And uh, it looks like a gorilla, but, you know, Kong's not really a gorilla to begin with. You know, he's, right, right. he's a bit different. But anyway, so, yeah, you know, Toho just had to kind of suck it up and go, we got deadlines and we got to make this picture. We're already committed. This, the Americans are already setting release dates. We got to get this stuff. We got to make it do or die. We just can't back. We, there's no way to back out. Right. You know, what was that? What was that Kevin Costner picture from the 80s or early night? Well, I think it's like 80s. No way out. Yeah, right, right. No you know, it's way like out. there was no way out for Toho. They just had to suck it up and do it. The same kind of thing happened on another picture they did like several years later, which is called Latitude Zero, which has Joseph Cotton in it and uh, Richard Jekyll and uh, Cesar Romero and Patricia Medina who was um, Joseph Cotton's wife. And uh, it's a a sci-fi pot boiler uh, kind of fantasy underwater picture that probably would have been amazing if it was made in the Mm fifties. It's kind of anachronistic being made in the late sixties, even though there were, uh, there were several underwater pictures of the same ilk being made around the same time. Like MGM produces thing called uh, Captain Nemo in the Underwater City, like the same year, and released it the same year. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, it was one of those things where they had an American producer, it was based on an American story, a series of radio plays, and um, they set this whole thing up, and then the American producer lost all his funding mm. before Toho made the monsters for the movie. So the monster suits in that are ratty, but the miniature stuff that they built, they built humongous, they built a 15-meter research vessel that's only in maybe two minutes of the movie. Which movie is this again? Latitude Zero. Latitude Zero. Uh, but anyway, it's like Toho faced that a couple of times, you know, and then you also have a lot of people don't really realize that, you know, you don't have the time that they do now where, you know, they make something like uh, Infinity War or Endgame and they go, okay, well, you know, we're going to take, you know, where they spend like a year to do just the visual effects. You know, right? They, they because have they have more time now, right? And they they've got a year or two and, years and they, to make uh, these pictures. They plan it out better. Yeah, well, it's 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 not necessarily planned out better. It's like they're they allow for these films to be fully realized now, mm, right? Um, when they're the big tentpole pictures, whereas when you were still at the studio system, the old studio system is like Toho at their height were putting out two new movies every two weeks. Jesus Christ. I can't imagine yeah. that kind of shooting yeah. schedule nowadays. And those were double features. You know, oh back gosh. when they still did double features. So you had the A picture and then you had the B picture. And B doesn't mean bad. 
B-grade doesn't mean poor. B-grade is a support pitcher because you, you, you want two movies and and they might be totally two different genres. Like, I think the, the co-feature with the original Mothra when it opened in Japan was a comedy. So you had the monster film and then you had a comedy. So it was just a matter of, um, of putting together a, a package of entertainment, an evening's entertainment for, you know, general audiences. Mm-hmm. And the same thing that was being done in America. We'd have the A picture and the B picture. And, you know, the, that B thing kind of stuck when people started referencing those uh, movies in the, in, the, in the 60s and 70s in, in books. And that kind of like, uh, it still sticks today. Yeah, it's sort that, of like B means B means poor. I was going to say, is that the origin of like a B, B-list actor or B-list yeah. movie or B-movie? Okay, Exactly. Got That's it. exactly where that comes from. So. Huh. Uh, the American studio system called it an A picture and a B picture. No kidding. Okay, I had no and idea. And so, yeah, that. B doesn't necessarily be, be bad, even though, like, again, you get to something like a company like Universal where their A, a picture would be, like, monolith monsters, and then the B picture would be, like, a really bad movie, you know, because it's just like, well, kids are going to just come here on a Saturday matinee, doesn't matter. Right. So it'll be like a monster picture and a Western or an odor, you know, real cheap, low-budget Western, you know. Because you don't have to build a lot. You know, they had standing Western sets, you know. So then you got, like, the lesser-known cowboy actors. You know, these guys that just did nothing but cowboy pictures, you know. So, uh, you know, and then the connotations when you get to, like, the smaller studios um, and, and film companies like PRC, Republic Pictures, um, uh, you know, you, you uh, they their budgets were lower than the bigger studios, obviously. So then their B pictures were even worse you know so the real true meaning of a b picture like people think plan nine from outer space is a b movie and plan nine that from outer space is an independently produced terrible movie (laughs) you know it's just it was independently produced and then he just sold it to somebody Mm -hmm. that said we'll put it out somehow so there's you know this this general lumping in of everything that people kind of mis misconstrue um was you know when Mothra was released in the United States in in July '62, the co-feature was the Three Stooges in Orbit. Really? Yeah. What the hell? Now, when when Columbia Pictures or Universal or whoever released these pictures, and they would have a B picture, sometimes that was a program you could buy into if you were a theater owner. You go, oh, I'll take that whole package because then I don't have to think about booking a, a second feature. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the, they were given the option and there would be that in the press kit where you would have the ad that you would clip, the theater would clip and send to the newspaper that had like Mothra now playing at the such and such theater co-feature. And sometimes that would be blank. Mm-hmm. So you could build your own co-feature, build your own double feature. So they could pick another mm-hmm. film if they wanted to. But the main one that Columbia was pushing uh, would be Three Stooges in Orbit, but you could just pick your own one if you wanted to. The audience could member pick, could pick their own one? Or the, no, no, the, the, studio, the theater, the, the theater, theater owners. Yeah, okay, the theater, the, whoever was booking the theater or theaters in that town. Got it. You know, because sometimes there would be one the, theater company and they would own two or three theaters in the same town. Um, and then, of course, back in those days, something that people can't imagine now is is there were triple features sometimes. Holy there would crap. be a, a, like How a long smaller, are these movies? Well, back in those days, the longest movie you would get would be like 90 minutes. Okay. You know, I mean, if it was a big spectacle, like, you know, Ten Commandments, 
yeah, okay, well, that's like two and a half hours or two hours or whatever, two, two and a half hours. And they would have an intermission, okay. the big spectacles like that. But, I mean, your average movie uh, would be anywhere between, you know, like 80 and 100 minutes long. Um, and the B features would be shorter. Sometimes the B package film would be anywhere from uh, 60 to 80 minutes, sometimes as short as, I mean, did I say 60? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They'd be sometimes generally average like 70 to 80 minutes long, sometimes 60. They could be as short as 60 minutes, especially in the 1940s uh, when there was a lot of uh, film noir being produced. So a lot of those pictures are, are fairly short, the B pictures, which are totally crackerjack if you see any of them, actually. They're very crackerjack movie. Uh, I guess I got to ask, man. Yeah, yeah. How the hell did you acquire all this knowledge? <laughs> this isn't I, all from doing the book. Oh, no, this is life experience, you know, com- compiled a sad life experience, <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, you're this- a walking encyclopedia. Well, there, you know, there's there's other kooks like me from the same generation where um, here here's the deal. And again, like, you don't have to let me keep, just interrupt whenever with a question or whatever, because otherwise I'll go like, uh, oh, know, I've, 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 I've been letting you go for at least 45 minutes. It's yeah, been yeah, great. Just shut me the hell up. You know, no, it's interrupt good. with a question because that's stimulating too. But, um, and might, I might actually be a lot more productive and shorter in my explanations <laughs> of things. But back when I grew up, which, you know, was pretty much you know, growing up in the, in, in the seventies where you, you, you really know what you're looking at. And um, you're starting to tie names together to things at, at an age where you're not just a little kid just going, I like this movie. Right. Just sitting there absorbing things without thinking right, about where it. Where you start really kind of like connecting the dots and recognizing the actors between pictures. And at the time I grew up, you know, you still had cartoons on TV uh, that were old cartoons for us at that time. You know, you had like Bugs Bunny, the Melody, uh, Merry Melodies, uh, Looney Tunes. Uh, the Merry Melodies are the older Looney Tunes, right? Mm-hmm. From the 30s. And, you know, those were in color and those were still on TV. Um, and you would see these things like it was like Hollywood Parade of 1938. This is like 1972, 1973. And you're seeing, you know, the Hollywood Parade of 1938. And they're making fun of like, they're, they're doing parodies of, of like Clark Gable and, and uh, other big Hollywood actors, Eddie Cantor, comedians. And I know their names from watching these cartoons. Mm-hmm. And I could I knew who they were from the movies that were playing on local television at the time because we didn't have 180 channels to choose from. And you couldn't build your own programming like you can now. Right. So cable was the first thing that kind of took away um, being force-fed in the best way possible of cinematic education. When I was growing up, you had maybe locally we had four, six channels. You had like four, uh, if you remember, anybody remembers this, you had four VHF channels and maybe two or three uh, UHF channels, which was a different frequency, right? Okay. And so, you know, uh, three of the channels would be network affiliates, you know, NBC, CBS, ABC, and then you had local channels. And all of them were, had local channels, but they didn't carry that affiliate program. So that the people that the stuff that people watched all across the country, like 
you know, Charlie's Angels or, or Six Million Dollar Man or whatever. We saw that all across the country, but none of us were watching the same channel. We were watching the local affiliates broadcast in wherever you lived in the United States. It wasn't one big nationwide broadcast. Um, and so, uh, like with cable, you know, it's just one signal going out to everybody through a satellite, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you had those choices of those channels. And if you didn't like what NBC, ABC, and CBS had, like our local uh, NBC was KRON Channel 4. You had CBS was KPIX5. And uh, and uh, and ABC was uh, KGO7. So, you know, uh, if you didn't like any of that stuff, you could watch KTVU Channel 2, which is our big local independent, which had a huge film library. Uh, these other channels who were the affiliates, they just didn't sit around all day waiting for the networks to kick on in the evening, you know, uh, starting with the, like, the national news at 6 or whatever it was. You know, they would have programming all day, and they would have their own film libraries. They would have uh, old TV shows that they bought, and they would have their own locally produced television shows. So every station around the country would have locally produced television shows that I could say when I grew up, I saw Captain Satellite. He hosted kids' cartoons. And a person uh, in Sacramento, about 80 miles away, would go, we had Captain Sacto. And someone in Los Angeles had someone else, and someone in Philly had Wee Willie Weaver. Sure. And, and somebody in New York had a different cartoon host. And then they have the rise of the horror hosts that came out of that, you know, too. And you had the kids shows, you had Bozo. Bozo show all across the country was the local Bozo. <laughs> really? If you could believe it. Oh, yeah. There would be local personalities. Okay. So the Bozo, the company that owned Bozo uh, would, would, would say, you can have the Bozo show. You just pay the franchise and you do your own franchise in your own city. Oh, see, I always thought it was just one bozo across no. the nation. Yeah, there was the one main guy, Gary Harmon, I think his name was. God, how do I remember this crap? I've been wondering you know, this the entire show already. How do you remember just, all this? See, it's all useless junk. It's totally useless. <laughs> you know, um, it's it, interesting, it, though. It doesn't make it doesn't give me a better job. You know, it doesn't, you know, it provides interesting content, though, for an audio podcast. Let me tell you. Yes, yes, it does. But anyway, <laughs> so, you know, you had all this local programming and and, uh, you know, these stations had their own movies and Channel 2 also had a show that was probably done all over the country. I'm sure it was done all over the country. Dialing for Dollars. Everybody had a Dialing for Dollars show. It was lampooned by SCTV, uh, where you have the guy giving away money while you're watching the movie. You just have to answer the question that was like, today's secret number is... You know, and then later we're going to call somebody and they pulled a number out of the phone book or people sent letters into the, you know, into the or postcards into the show and they would write their phone number down. They were calling Miss J. Johnson of Sebastopol. What's today's count in the amount? And what's the name of today's movie or whatever? And then you'd win a pot of money. Right. And uh, and so on those shows, they would show like these the movies from their library, you know, so you'd get to see like. You know, film noir. You know, you got to see these movies from the 40s mm-hmm. and 50s. And then, when the, you know, of course, with monster stuff, you know, uh, there was a time when I was growing up where there were at least, on local television, there were at least, over various, cha- various channels, not just one channel, 
you could see up to six or eight horror, sci-fi, and fantasy films per week on television at different times of the day, on different days of the week. And this is when the, which years is Oh, this, this started before I was born, but you know, you had, you had, um, it all started in 1958 with, uh, universal, uh, pictures, uh, at very at the very early days of television, uh, the the big studios were like, "Television's the enemy. It's lowbrow. It's garbage, and we don't want." And stations, the companies, the TV companies, were going to the studios and going, "We want to buy your movies, and we can show them on TV. Wouldn't that be great? Buy your old catalog. You're not showing them anymore. We can show them on TV. Sell them to us. You know, license them to us. Lease them to us." Right. And the Hollywood no. studios were, were like, F you. Uh, you know, motion pictures can't be compromised by television. You're just going to put dog food commercials in them. Mm. And there was a lot of resistance. Of course, then they saw how much money that could be made from TV. And they relented. And uh, eventually, uh, Universal Pictures uh, had a cooperation with uh, the television division of Columbia Pictures, which was called Screen Gems. And they put together this package of, uh, I think it was something like 30 universal horror films and some Columbia horror films called uh, Shock. And they did this big whole promotion. They did this big press kit and they sent it to stations all over the country. Be the first station in your area. Don't get left out. Don't let some of your your rival station, you know, get these films. They're going to be surefire boffo ratings. Kids are going to want to watch these crazy movies. And uh, and so they sold these things to stations that that caused a whole new generation of kids to see Dracula, Frankenstein, the Mummy, the Wolfman, and created that the monster boom of the sixties. Mm-hmm. That's what sold the reason why we have Adams Family, the Munsters, and a revival of the horror picture in the sixties is because of this shock package. And so the shock package went out to TV and the stations, or how can we promote this locally? And there were, had been somebody recalled that there was a horror. There was a person who hosted late night horror films in in uh, Los Angeles in the early fifties. That came and went, but she made a big sensation, and she was like in Time Mag, not, not Time, but she was like in, I think Life Magazine got a lot of national coverage, even though she was only on a local station, the ABC affiliate in New York, and it was a live show wasn't recorded and her name was vampira hmm. and she was the archetype horror host she would tell ride bad jokes when they came back from commercial and then go we're going back to the movie she'd do little skits or whatever and so this was the formation of what we call the horror host um and so with the shock movie package there were places like again the different bozos the different cartoon hosts all over the country there became horror hosts everywhere, all across the country that people uh, in there, you know, they, some of them started in the 50s. This whole phenomenon of horror hosts, horror hosts lasted well into the 80s, even though cable was starting to kill uh, local stations being able to have big film uh, libraries because uh, guys like Ted Turner were buying up all these packages from the studios and throwing money for the exclus- at them for exclusivity. So all of a sudden, they just all this disappeared from local television. Just getting on the cable. 
Yeah, all across the country. You know, you can watch the MG. There was Ted Turner to watch the MGM channel. There's nothing but MGM movies. Mm-hmm. That's it, right. you know. But so then a local station couldn't show them, you know. Right. So anyway, so this horror host thing happened. So when I'm a kid, you know, we had a uh, local horror host. We had a, several, one of them before I was, way before I was born. And then we had another one that I just caught a little bit of, a guy called Asmodeus who hosted his show out of... Castle Noir, or was it Chateau? I think it was Chateau Noir. But uh, then we got this guy named Bob Wilkins, who didn't have a gimmick. A lot of these guys wore capes and dressed like monsters or mad scientists and had, you know, I'm Morgus the Magnificent or whatever. That's a real guy, too. Um, And then we had Bob Wilkins, who came on in a suit. He had a pair of uh, glasses, and he smoked a cigar. And he was a youngish guy. And uh, he would go, tonight's movie is so terrible. <laughs> it was delivered to Channel 2 in a brown paper envelope. No return address. <laughs> you know, he would do these, 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 and he was deadpan. He was an ad guy that fell into hosting television. And uh, he was our horror host. Uh, and his show was sometimes locally. Now, San Francisco is a one of the bigger television markets. And it used to, at the time, the big three television markets, that's where they would test shows. Mm-hmm. They were worthy of being like, you know, national network shows. Uh, would Were San Francisco, Chicago, and New York. Okay. And San Francisco was a big market. And Bob's show started before Saturday Night Live uh, came on the air, before it was, you know, launched. Mm-hmm. And he became this big phenomenon. And then when Saturday Night launched... And became a huge hit. You know, it's a, you know, obviously Saturday Night Live is still on. So the original one must have been a hit, right? Culture changing, pop culture changing show. Our show, the Bob Wilkins show, which was called Creature Features, would routinely beat Saturday Night Live in the San Francisco ratings. Really? Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. Locally produced show. We had, a, he would have a market of 1 million viewers. Every Saturday night. So his show, when he first debuted in 1971, uh, he started out with one movie at 9 o'clock, and within six months, they went to a double feature. And then his show was on... uh, In 1979, he started... He decided to bail. He'd been hosting a horror film since 66. And so he decided to quit in 1979. But if he hadn't decided to quit at that point, he would have kept going because he was actually at the same time while he was hosting a show in San Francisco, he was hosting a show in Sacramento, 80 miles North. Mm-hmm. And he would drive up to Sacramento once a week to film that show and then back down to the Bay area. So, and he continued with the Sacramento show because of his contract with that station until about, uh, I think it was 84. Hmm. So he was this huge phenomenon. I mean, we, he did a public appearance, uh, at uh, for the opening of some of an of, of animated feature called Jack and the Beanstalk that Columbia Pictures or whoever had him promoting on Creature Features. And it happened to have been a Japanese animated film. But anyway, so, like, there, were, there must have been 400 kids that showed up to meet him. And then the crowd got bigger. That all wanted his autograph. Jeez. Oh, and it was, <laughs> it was really, it was really, really, really crazy. Um, so you, but you had horror hosts all over the country that were all as popular as Bob Wilkins. 
just in their local market. In their local market. And people love them and remember them to this day. Mm-hmm. And there are websites devoted. There's a documentary I, I recommend you checking out. If you're even remotely interested in, in the phenomena of the uh, American horror host, uh, a friend of mine worked on this documentary. This guy, a friend of mine, Mike Monahan, who also wrote a book about the history of Bay Area horror hosts, which is indispensable, called Shock It to Me, The Golden Ghouls of the Golden Gate. Uh, he also worked on a, uh, a film called American Scary. He conducted all the interviews with all the horror hosts for that for that film. Was, and I believe... I'm sorry? I was going to say, was our... So I live in Chicago. Was our horror host Sven Gulli? Yeah. Yeah. Is know, that, so, is, is he the same, so is he the same kind of guy you're talking about, a horror host? Right, exactly. Okay, gotcha. You know, they all do different different shtick. Right. You know, uh, but you know, uh, your Sven Gulli used to be the son of Sven Gulli because there was another Sven Gulli before him. Got it. Okay. In the seventies, and and that was, uh, uh, you know, a guy who was amazing. I mean, there's still videos of of, of his shows that are on mm-hmm. YouTube of just his host segments, and they're crazy. They're really crazy, and he was only on a couple of years, but he left an indelible impact in uh, in Chicago television history. Um, yeah, he was and, only around. This says three years. Jerry G. Bishop. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Bishop, hilarious. Yeah, I mean, and Sven the the current Sven Gulli, uh, was a fan of Jerry G. Bishop. He was a devoted fan and said, "Can I do it? Can, you're gone. Can I take over the mantle? Will you give me permission to become the next Sven Gulli?" No kidding. And and that's the second instance of one fan becoming his, uh, you know, following in the footsteps of his favorite horror host. There was a guy in, in, in Cleveland uh, called uh, Goulardi in the 60s, early 60s. And he created, like, I mean, this guy would blow up stuff on TV. Mm-hmm. He would blow up model kits. People would send him model kits just for him to put a firecracker in it and blow it up on the air, which you can't do now. No, you can't do that. We're going to blow something up in the studio. And he would just, he had his whole beatnik rift and um, his name was Ernie Anderson. And eventually he was, he was comedic partners in Cleveland with a guy named Tim Conway, who became very famous a few years later. Uh, uh, Like McHale's Navy and the Carol Burnett show. And and uh, they decided they got an offer to move to Los Angeles to do a Western, a, com- a comic Western for network television. Uh, with Tim Conway being sort of like a goofy, like deputy, right? And Ernie Anderson mostly is kind of a straight man. Well, um, they made the pilot, and they were, you know, they were they were waiting to, you know, get an approval for a series. And they had moved from Cleveland, said we're done with Cleveland TV. Goulardi is going away, and. Uh, then the network came in and said, we like the Conway kid, but we got to get rid of you, Anderson. You're, we don't know what to do with you. So they kept Conway like they broke up the band, basically. you know. Mm-hmm. And Ernie Anderson went, well, what the hell? I'm not going to go back to crawl back to Cleveland and do the same stuff. So he eventually became the voice of ABC, the love boat. Oh, so he weird. was the announcer at ABC that day, tonight on the love boat. And he is the father of Paul Anderson, the director, the famous movie director. Oh, what the fuck? <laughs> yep. All comes so, full circle. Yeah. So um, I recommend you checking out this documentary, American Scary. It's got uh, uh, Jerry G. Bishop, uh, Chicago's Fenguli, original Sven uh 
passed away, unfortunately, but he's interviewed in this documentary. Um, and Bob Wilkins is in this documentary, my horror host. And uh, they got as many guys that were still breathing to do it, including the original horror host who has since also she has passed, Milo Nurmi, uh, who once dated James Dean, who was Vampira. Jesus Christ, you know, you know a lot of shit, man. It's just, <laughs> I wish I could remember things that would actually be useful as a skill. Yeah, well, let's you let's know, get for, to the, uh, the the present day. So, what do you think about the uh, the upcoming Godzilla film? Or have you do you know anything? Have you what do you what do you what are your thoughts? Let me just leave it there because I know you can well, go. Yeah, I have. Uh, I'm not going to say I have controversial thoughts. I think uh, kids. What I consider what are kids today? <laughs> yeah, what are what are kids do you under what are thirteen? You know, if you're, if you're thirty, if you're thirty or younger, you're okay. A kid. So I I'm actually thirty one, so I'm an adult. Okay, so you're not a kid anymore. Good, you're an adult. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, no, you know, uh, I can understand the cultural perspective of people just being excited to see this this character transition into a tentpole Hollywood picture with all the lavish stuff that comes with it. Whereas I grew up seeing promises of these things uh, that were going to be lavishly done with big modern budgets that uh, left a lot to be desired, Mm -hmm. you know, at first. So like the 76 Kong, which was extremely disappointing. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it was disappointing to people at the time. But, you know, we were told it was going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. You had Dino De Laurentiis saying, when the Maya Kong die... Everybody cry, you know. <laughs> they and, also uh, built a what a thirty foot Kong that they use yeah. in one or two scenes. Yeah, it was like Carlo Rambaldi, uh, the guy who built ET, and he did the alien, the one animatronic alien at the end of uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm-hmm. Did a bunch of stuff in Italy. Uh, anyway, so uh, did monsters for like Hercules pictures too in, in the sixties. The peplum, uh, peplums, the sa- the what a sword and sandal pictures. Um, but, uh, you know, so, you know, the 2014 movie came out, the Gareth Edwards thing, and, you know, I kind of went in just sort of, you know, ambivalent. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of, I enjoyed it. A lot of people didn't like it. They thought it was boring. It didn't have enough action in it. I liked it. focused too much on the one character. But I thought that the way that it was, it was plotted and the way that it was paced was closer to an actual Japanese uh, monster picture than than most people would have done. Mm-hmm. It just sort of had that, that pacing and, and the, and the reveals were kind of, it, it made me feel that it was a natural inheritor. Uh, and they were paying attention to the source material. Mm-hmm. Um, with this picture, you know, the director is saying, uh, now we're talking about King of the Monsters where, you know, the director is, is, you know, I'm a fan and I love these movies and I love these monsters and all that. But, you know, a lot of times that's what they're, they're supposed to say. You know, right. they may actually like them. They may have saw, seen them when they were a kid, but you know, it, it's just kind of a fan service to get the fans to rally around them. They go, "He's one of us." Michael Doherty is the director, right? And you know, he may very well may very well be. I mean, I don't know the guy. I don't know much about him. Um, I try to stay away from as much spoilery material as possible, not because I'm uh, banking on like when I go in, I just want to experience this thing for myself. It's like, I kind of don't care, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's just the lip service and okay. So here's an example. I have avoided most of the trailers 
You know, I think I watched the first good. The first couple of trailers. The trailers look good, but they've revealed a lot. So well, yeah, good. you know, and I was just like, you know, do I really, you know, and it's like sometimes, you know, they put so much stuff in the trailer that that's pretty much all the hit. That's all the bullet points that mm-hmm. you'll see in the movie. Right. You know, and it's like, oh, well, I guess we saw that's a highlight reel of all the stuff that was in the movie. So it's interspersed over two hours, <laughs> a three minutes of action interspersed over two hours of the movie, um, which isn't the first time. It isn't a bad thing. Monster Zero. The climactic battle is less than four minutes long. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something like three minutes long. And it's like, but the whole movie is so good and moves, the narrative moves in such a great way. And, you know, they have a battle in the middle. There's like a destruction scene where Rodan and Mothra, I mean, Godzilla, Rodan and uh, and Ghidra go around smashing crap. And uh, that's kind of cool. But when it comes to the punch out, the final punch out, I mean, it's matched to the music cue. You know, it's about like three minutes, you know, it's like, but. You're, and the combined monster scenes are something like 11 minutes out of a 90-minute picture, you know? That sounds like, oh, my God, that's horrible. But the movie is so good. That's why it remains a lot of fans' favorite in Japan and the United States, people who grew up with that movie, especially, you know? Um, it's just because it's, it's well-made and it's well-crafted uh, for what it is. And uh, I don't know what to expect from this thing and and you know you have a lot of the king of the monsters that is and a yep. lot of people are you know just putting their eggs in such a big basket that um you know they're either it's it's bound to be disappointing for some people because they're putting all their hopes you know into into this movie that it's going to be the most amazing godzilla thing they've ever seen in their lives well i think this is if i'm correct me if i'm wrong after godzilla versus king kong i heard that Toho gets all the rights back. So these are the last Godzilla movies, right? Well, what happens actually is, is that, that Toho has not given up rights. Not the Toho, rights, but they're, the, they're going to Yeah, well, it's, it's basically, it's Legendary's contract runs out. Right, there you go. Yeah, so just to be specific, because there have been fans who are kind of confused on, on the internet mm-hmm. that they really don't, you know, it's like, it's, it's not necessary to know how uh, studios uh, deal in IPs. You know, intellectual properties. Mm-hmm. It's not necessary for you to enjoy movies or discuss movies because you don't know the legalese of everything. You know, uh, but it's important that to clear that when people become confused. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of fans, uh, you know, are going like, "Toho gave their white rights away." You know, no, but they, they licensed it. <laughs> they, you know, you know, it's like and you have to kind of explain that to people and and uh, without being condescending and and. Uh, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll, you know, they'll learn something or they'll just, you know, be like, oh, okay, I feel better. Toho still has the rights, but they have to wait for the contract to expire. Okay, great. I got it. Yeah. You know, and it, it's, that's like, you know, that's because some people think Toho just gave it away, you know. Um, they would never so, do that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you, you know, the Legendary's contract was for three movies. Got it. And uh, that's basically, you know, the Hollywood standard three-picture deal. Um. Except Marvel, you know, the MCU broke all that. The right. Marvel Studios just totally destroyed that model, you know, uh, once they got rolling. Once they knew they had something happening, you know, they went, oh, screw three pitchers. We're just going to keep going. Although, you know, it's like you got Iron Man 1, 2, and 3, and you got Captain America 1, 2, and 3, and we've had four Avengers films, you know. So, uh, and there's going to be three Guardians pitchers and so on. Three, three Thor movies. Three usually works. Yeah, three is usually you know it's 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 the it's the George Lucas model, right? You know, 
Um, and that's where the let kind of came from was the George Lucas model. Because, you know, if you had the three pitcher uh, plan uh, earlier than Star Wars, you know, uh, you know, you had, uh, you know, we don't we'd only have like three, you know, three Sean Connery bonds. Right. You know, <laughs> and that's a sad thing about Star Wars that that kind of bothers me about Star Wars thinking back on Star Wars. But we'll get if we have time, we'll get back to that um, or another time. Yeah. But um, it should have been the adventures, the continuing adventures of Luke Skywalker. And not just three movies. It should have been like Bond movies. Where it just kept going and going. Or Skywalker this time, you know. Yeah. Um, which was the original kind of plan. If we make enough money, we could just keep making these Skywalker movies. Um, and then George's wife left him. And mm. he just wanted to end the whole thing. So it became <laughs> a three-pitcher three thing. Um, well, here's my main concern with King of the Monsters, real yeah. quick. Is for me... No, I mean, keep me on track here, man. Well, I'm going to hijack the whole thing. Oh, that's fine. It's a, we're just talking, man. Yes. Um, the, my main concern with Godzilla: King of the Monsters is for me. I don't. How do you make it any bigger? Because this movie has been teasing that they have um, all these titans, and you have like, King Ghidorah and Rodan and Mothra. I feel like Godzilla versus King Kong for someone that's followed kaiju films as long as I have, and obviously longer with you. That's kind of a letdown in comparison to these three big monsters that are going to be in this. Right, right, yeah. It's you sort know, of like... Uh, like, it's just know, a giant ape. We're, we're, he's, he's dealing with King Ghidorah here. Right. You know, even though Kong is an icon, uh, you know, yeah, it's kind of like, okay, well, that's a little more focused. It should have been the other way around. Right. You know, I, I understand been, what they're doing. I mean, the Kong is the bigger icon. That's the moneymaker, but... Yeah, I think what they wanted to do is, like, Legendary wanted to make sure to... Uh, they didn't know how long it was going to take to do these movies because, uh, you know, once the Gareth, the Gareth Edwards film came out, then there was this sort of like, they pulled back and said, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're not going to make the next movie for four more years. Well, yeah, they wanted to do the shared universe thing. So they made Kong, Kong Skull Island. What'd you right. think of that? Did you like Kong Skull right. Island? Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought it was, I thought it was entertaining for what it was, but it's a horrible movie. <laughs> it is such a cartoon. It is. It has no semblance of reality whatsoever. All the actors they cast in that are sort of like they don't belong there, and they all look uncomfortable. They, well, they, they, um, there were so many in that film. I don't know why they needed that many names. Well, and I mean, it's not like a, know, they, not everyone has anything. Most of the people have nothing to do. Right. They they build up Tom Hiddleston, and I think they just put him in there because of you know him playing Loki. Right. You Ray know? Larson, same thing. Like she's just the girl. Yeah, that takes I mean, pictures. They, right, and, <laughs> and and there was a scene. It was so ridiculous. I'm usually the way that I grew up. I was so obsessed with movies that I would sit and watch the movies without uttering a word. Even as a small child, I was just like hypnotized, mesmerized mm -hmm. by movies. And when people would talk or kids, I go to a kids matinee. When I'm eight years old at a kids matinee, it's nothing but eight. Eight-year-old average kids, you know, whatever kids, just full of kids, and I would hate it because I go, "Shut up! I'm trying to watch the movie." You know, I wasn't throwing popcorn and running around. I was like, "All y'all need to settle down." Even though I didn't do that, I was afraid to do that. I didn't want to get pummeled, but I, that's the way my brain worked. Is I, I'm watching this damn movie, so I've never spoken out in a movie or or or, or vocalized anything mm -hmm. unless of disdain. Unless, uh, you know, I was cheering or applauding, which became, didn't really become common until Star Wars. 
Start okay, no. so that's when that started happening because now it's well, super common with the big blockbusters. Right. Well, it's 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 come back. Mm-hmm. You know, it came back because during the seventies, you know, when I was growing up, most of the movies were very cynical because we were living in very cynical times. I mean, we think today's times are cynical, and they they are. They're they're, <laughs> they're horrific. But mm-hmm. you know, back then that was the worst of all time, besides the depression and World War Two. <laughs> mm-hmm. so I'm not trying to marginalize anything, but the time that I grew up in, you know, you had, you know, you had Watergate, Vietnam, you had uh, still happening, you had uh, energy crisis, you had a recession, you had a lot of distrust in the government. Yeah, we had a lot of a lot of bad things going on, man. And so a lot of movies, especially movies that were coming out of what they called the new American cinema in the late '60s, things like Easy Rider and 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 other pictures are very. Uh, either uh, cynical or cynical and bleak or cynical, bleak and nihilistic where nobody had happy endings. Everything was dirty, scummy, and everybody died, whether you were good guys were painted gray and that's the way it was. And then uh, star Wars came along and was just a, a pure escapism of good versus bad white hats and black hats. And that's why it became such a hit because it was a catharsis. For people of all ages, I mean, it was really a cultural phenomenon because, like I said before, by the time you get in the 70s, like all horror films, sci-fi films were made for kids. And what one critic actually wrote, in a, I, I'll have to track it down, uh, but one critic uh, said, uh, describing a movie, reviewing a sci-fi fantasy movie, and I can't remember what which one it was. He goes, this movie was made for the very young and adult, and uh, it goes, for children Something along the lines of, this movie was made for children and retarded adults. You said that about Star Wars? No, no. Oh. I can't remember the picture. Okay. But that's, that's a critic. That was, the common, <laughs> that was the common thought. Or he said adults, you know, are adults that think like children. Oh, man. You know, uh, it was very derogatory, obviously. You know, I think, you know, anyway, so that was the basic prevalent thought of horror, science fiction, and fantasy films. And... Uh, 20th Century Fox had no faith in Star Wars. This is a widely known story. I'm not revealing anything that people who are into Star Wars know, uh, don't know, rather. And um, and uh, uh, they kept try they kept threatening George with cutting the production. Like we're just going to shut you down if you're not finished. We don't care. We'll just shut you down and we'll assemble what we can, and or we'll just not release the movie at all. Jeez, what a mistake that would have been if they would have shut that down. Yeah, and he had one guy, he had one guy at 20th Century Fox, he was the main, the head of 20th Century Fox, that was the only guy that was, you know, his cheerleader that believed in this picture, and uh, that, you know, kind of like kept these guys at bay until they could actually finish the movie. But anyway, so 20th Century Fox banked all their money that year. This is the same company, 20th Century Fox, that released Star Wars. They had no, and produced it, they had no confidence in this picture. Mm-hmm. They were banking. They put all their eggs in their back. Our big science fiction hit of the year is Damnation Alley. I've never, and you're heard, gonna say, I've never heard of that movie. There you go. <laughs> that was like the one of the biggest bombs. Like 20th Century Fox at that point in the 70s was being reorganized, and it was like on very shaky legs. And Star Wars, a movie that they hated, they didn't want made. In fact, all the other studios turned down producing Star Wars. And 20th Century Fox was the last hope. <laughs> Get it? Mm. And, nice. and 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 to produce that picture, 
and but uh, all the execs put all their eggs in a basket for a picture that was based on a novel, uh, post-apocalyptic, again, the 70s, post-apocalyptic movie about uh, uh, survival after a nuclear holocaust. And they had built this huge uh, tank, kind of this big giant, it was kind of like a big giant uh, 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 post-apocalyptic van called the Landmaster, which was uh, with the main characters kind of try trek across country. Uh, the survi- three of the survivors, I think, and they tr- they try to cross country to find uh, to find uh, you know any humans that are still alive. Mm. And they cross through like flaming desert and raging seas. Like I think the Great Lakes turn into an ocean, uh, and they try to cross that. And there's violent storms, and there's giant scorpions and man-eating cockroaches. And I'm not kidding. This is all in this picture. And, I mean, it looks like a TV movie. What is the name of this uh, again? It's called Damnation Alley. And it stars freaking George Papard and Jan Michael Vincent. Damnation Alley. And, uh, and uh, uh, Winfred uh, from, from Star Trek II. I can't remember his first name now. Um, see, my brain isn't perfect. I can't remember all his junk. Some of the names I forget. Jean Michael Vincent? Yeah. Yeah. Jan Michael Vincent, who recently passed away, George Prepard from the A Team, who later was in the A Team, and uh, and uh, and and basically a bunch of you know other you know it's just it's a disaster picture that was a disaster, you know, and uh, it's not really great. It's it's a fun time capsule to watch it, but um, you twentieth uh, century Fox bet on that movie, and it. Flopped hard, it crashed and burned, and uh, and Star Wars turned into this huge phenomenon because you know you have this post-apocalyptic, very cynical, um, you know, people die in it, main characters die, nobody's really alive at the end. You know, Star Wars is kind of you know, uh, you know, safer, like, yeah, <laughs> secondary, secondary heroes, third tier heroes, you know, died. The big death is, you know, is Obi-Wan, right? So, right. Um, which wasn't originally, he wasn't originally supposed to die. You know, he was supposed to be in the uh, command center at Yavin. And uh, I think, uh, I think uh, Alec Guinness wanted off the picture. <laughs> He's like, I don't do anything, but I'm standing around with everybody else just looking at screens. So I don't, my character has nothing to do after this. After we leave the, you know, after we leave the Death Star, mm-hmm. I have nothing to do. I said, why don't you just kill me off? It could be a powerful moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, let, let's get into this because we yeah. have about another ten minutes or so. Okay. This this has been this week. This last week was the one of the biggest weeks in terms of nerd long form storytelling history. Right. Did you catch Endgame? Are you? Oh a, yes, I did. All right. What are your thoughts? Oh yes, I did. Well. How big of a Marvel fan are you? MCU fan are you? Uh, when I was growing up, I reached for Marvel comics. Uh, if it wasn't a horror comic, I didn't care if it was a DC, you know, a House of Secrets or where monsters dwell or where creatures roam. But when I turned to superheroes, it's like I didn't even really buy Batman comics, even though I watched the Batman TV show and I watched the Batman cartoons and the Super Friends and stuff like that. But make mine Marvel, man. Spider-Man was my guy as a kid. And, uh, you know, the Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, 
And then as I grew older, you know, I really got into uh, the new generation uh, X-Men, you know, that uh, with Wolverine, Wolverine and, 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 and Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler, Colossus and, and all that. Right. And uh, my cousins, uh, my older cousins had like the early uh, X-Men, the very first X-Men comics and Fantastic Four. So when I would go to their house, I would read their comics, you know. Luckily, they trusted me not to throw them across the room or, you know, take a crayon to them. But uh, so I had that experience of, you know, like I think one of the first Fantastic Four comic books I remember reading was They Fight Anullis. And, uh, oh, yeah. And uh, that was like kind of blew my mind because the George, you know, uh, the uh, the uh, Jack Kirby art, man, King Kirby, and it kind of just like blew me away. But, yeah, so, you know, I started with Spider-Man. I watched those, those really uh, terrible terribly animated Marvel cartoons that were on TV, the very short ones um, that they did with, uh, you know, the Hulk and Iron Man. And, and that was kind of like the gateway drug too, because those were actually, they just took comic books and cut out the, <laughs> the panels, you know, and just kind of made the move around a little bit, but they carried those story arcs, mm-hmm. you know, over from the comics. And that was kind of a really good introduction for a very, you know, small boy. And uh, so, yeah, when, uh, you know, when Iron Man came out, I was kind of like, eh, maybe this thing, you know, we've got the Spider-Man, that Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Mm-hmm. I was like, eh, they're, they're good. They're really good. I really want to like them, but I can't completely love them. I don't hate them. I'm not going to pick them apart. But there was just something missing. You're talking about the Raimi you know? Spider-Man films? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, I lived through all those other crappy Marvel movies before that, you know, mm-hmm. um, like the Captain America movie from Canon Films, and that never really got released, or is that, that the never fan- really got released? Or is that the Fantastic Four film? That one didn't. That's the one that. Well, didn't that one, released. that one never got. That never got because, released. Yeah, that was a total write off. That was like some weird, <laughs> bizarro world. The, the Captain, that happened the Captain America people. one was where Red Skull is an Italian instead of a right. Nazi. Yeah, that's weird. Right, <laughs> and then yeah, yeah, and then you had like you know the TV stuff with Red Brown, and uh, the. Incredible Hulk TV show and the Spider-Man live action show. And those were like, I was like, where are the villains? Where are the monsters right. when I was a kid? So I went, eh. Uh, but when Iron Man came out, you know, a friend of mine said, oh, you know, go check out fantasy sci-fi horror films. You know, yeah, let's go see Iron Man. And I was just like, holy shit. They did this right. They, you know, and so needless, needless to say, yeah, they spiked the landing. And, you know, uh, any, any. Any guy and his sister could tell you the the last ten years of, of, of these MCU films, but yeah, Endgame was like last year. I was blown away. We're speechless. You know, obviously everybody was speechless at the end of Infinity War. Uh, I just could not really believe that they took the material <laughs> that seriously. Mm-hmm. Even if we'd come so far with all these other pictures, uh, for better or worse, with some of them, usually really good. Um, if not fantastic. And then uh, this one just was like that ending, that ending, the last scene. Spoiler with, alert, uh, if you want to with, say it. Yeah. yeah, for last year's movie. We're talking about Infinity War. Oh, you haven't Infinity seen War. Infinity War yet? Yeah, you can spoil that for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you have, you know, you have like Thanos just, you know, sitting down and looking at the sunset. It just has this, you know, kind of like a, a little, not a smirk, but he has a like a... a, a Content, sense of contentment on his face, and that was just like that's a hell of an ending, a ballsy ending. Holy shit! 
holy shit, you know, they're getting into some, you know, they're getting in some Kurosawa Seven Samurai, you know, uh, stuff right here with uh, ending the film on that kind of a note. And um, and then Endgame. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is like that whole film is holy shit. It is. Um, and I've been reading a couple comments from from just, you know, fans uh, talking about uh, what they thought. And, uh, you know, it, there's always those guys that come out and go, well, it was good, but it wasn't that great. I mean, I could just pick it apart all day. Right. And I go, those are the people that just want to pick apart everything or they have the their agenda of, you know, I'm a DC guy. I don't like Marvel. So I'm going to try to pick this apart as much as possible. Or they have just expectations that are beyond what anybody can do. Right. You know, and if their expectations were met or they could make the movie that they envision in their head, it would probably be a horrendous affair. <laughs> they would probably like, you know, drool all over it all day because that's what you do with your own creation, whether it's, you know, good or dead bad. on delivery or, or it's an Adonis, you know, it's like you're just going to drool on it. Um, but yeah, Endgame was just, man, there were, I didn't ex- I had I I had fleeting thoughts before the movie, you know, like uh before the movie, you know, while waiting for this movie to be finished and released, you know, how are they going to work that out, you know? Well, maybe they're going to do this. I know they're going to do something with the quantum realm. Mm-hmm. You know, they've set that up. It's obvious. A child could have figured that out that they're going to do something with the quantum realm, but what are they going to do is the important thing. And uh they hit these notes turned them around, made them more complex, explained it, worked that out, and tied everything in a bow. And at the same time, there are things that they that, that are left at the end of the movie where it's not... When people say it's a plot hole, they don't know what they're talking about. Because they're not really talking about a plot hole. They're talking about a untied knot mm-hmm. that is probably left untied for future films. Right. This isn't over. I mean, this is the end of this saga, but they're still going to make more MCU films. So, oh yeah, this is the end of the this iteration of the Avengers, right. obviously. So, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna move on from here. But I mean, they just basically, you know, entertained the hell out of me. I went in there going like, it's kind of like it's kind of weird. Some of the things I've said, and I've been watching a lot more Kevin Smith lately. Um, mm-hmm you know, just talking about movies and things he likes and uh, going like, wow, this guy and I are kind of like, you know, got a simpatico thing going on here (laughs) because, you know, he goes, I go to these movies and people tell me that I'm just a blowing Marvel and, you know, uh, you know, just because I, you know, I work in the industry and all that. It's like, no, I like these movies because I like them. That's what I grew up on. I'm a fan. That's why I just I just sit in the theater. I just go to the theater and say, "Entertain me. Tell me a story." Mm-hmm. He goes, "I don't care about what expectations didn't meet. I go in going like, I don't know what's going to happen. You tell me the story, right?" And that's pretty much my thought. Is like I, I want to go in there and you tell me a story. Yeah, I think it's dangerous when you go in there with your own expectations of how the story should go because then right. that's, it's impossible. It's never going to meet your expectation of a story. Yeah. You know, and are your expectations, right, really, does it, do they hold any water? Right. Is that an actual good story? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, you know, that's that's the thing. And, uh, you know, the same thing with, let's wrap this up with the, the, you know, or come full circle with King of the Monsters. You know, uh, so before Endgame, I saw trailers. And uh, the King, there were, you know, there was like the, you know, the Fast and Furious presents. Hobbs and Shaw, you know, yeah. Yeah, we're going to punch each other out for two hours. Yeah, just and, a big uh, punchy movie. Big punchy movie with super ridiculous they're doing superhero crap and they're supposed to be mortal humans. Yep. <laughs> um, but it looks funny. And if it's anything like cash and tango, Oh yeah. Maybe it'll be fun. Right. You know, it's going to be ridiculous. Sometimes you can't go too over the top where it's just like, Oh my God. And sometimes it's funny. It's a counterpoint, but it all depends on how it's executed. Right. Right. But so, you know, there's that. And you know, that got a couple chuckles out of me. Um, I usually watch trailers and go, or go pass, you know, and mm-hmm. there were a couple of those, and then they got to uh, King of the Monsters. And I hadn't seen the final trailer, because I just didn't want to look at it. I had no interest in seeing it online. And uh, I went, really, sun- somewhere over the rainbow? Yeah, somewhere over the rainbow, yes. Really? <laughs> I went, that's an odd choice. Okay. Uh, I don't get the context. Maybe... It'll figure in the movie, but this is just a trailer. Yeah. Trailer doesn't mean anything. It's just the sales pitch right. for the movie. That's all trailers are. Some people like rate trailers and they get all wound up. That trailer sucked. It's like, it doesn't matter. It's just a piece of advertising. That's right. all it is. It's not the movie. People now critique them as like seriously as they critique pictures, the, 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 the whole motion picture. And that's just, uh, frankly, it's kind of sad. But anyway, so... I see it, and it really didn't evoke uh, an emotion out of me. Um, and uh, when they said Ghidorah, and they dropped, you know, uh, they dropped Ghidorah's name, they dropped Godzilla's name, and I kind of cringed when Godzilla's name was dropped. They dropped it kind of weird, because one guy goes like, oh, God, and the other guy goes, Zilla. Yeah. And That's well, how was, they dropped it. <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, what's, her, what's, what's the actress's name, Pramiga? Uh, I'm, I know I'm screwing her whole name up. She was in Bates Motel TV show. That's in it. Um, but anyway, she she says, you know, we have to. Oh, we have to find re- Godzilla. Yeah, yeah, we have to. And I just that. went. It sounded like a line from like I, I, it immediately Vera made me Farmiga. think of. It. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, it reminded me of the Mattel TV commercial from 1978 with the Godzilla Shogun Warrior. Go get him, Godzilla! <laughs> it was just kind of like it's like it's like the it's like the the delivery of somebody who's dubbing an anime. We're in a cartoon, yeah. That's- <laughs> you know, it's like well, that's not how the Japanese actors do it, but they they're kind of taking the whole thing straight. But you're going like I can't separate acting from cartoon, uh, even though this is like people are being raped and murdered in this anime. Um, I'm in a cartoon. So, you know, kind of, it, it was kind of jarring, you know, uh, and I, I just kind of went, eh. So the trailer, the tra- and they had the Men in Black trailer, and I was just like, meh, I don't know how I feel about that, but, you know, hey, it's got him. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't all in in that. You know, it's just kind of like, I might go see it if somebody says it's really funny. You know, right. I, if not, I'll see it. Okay, I like Hemsworth. He's funny. He's naturally funny. He is very funny. Um, and uh, But anyway, so then they got to... Um, the Last Jedi. I mean, not the Last Jedi. God, that was last year. 
<laughs> got they got to uh, uh, Rise uh, of Skywalker. Uh, what is it called? Yeah, the Rise of Skywalker. The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, they got to that trailer and all the feels happened. Yeah, that was good for you. All the feels happened, and I'm known as the Godzilla guy. And the Godzilla trailer didn't do a thing for me. And frankly, after watching Game of Thrones uh, last night, I thought the dragon stuff in last night's episode of GOT. Mm-hmm was better than anything I saw in the Godzilla trailer. They did a really good job with the dragon stuff. That was amazing, especially for TV. That was yeah. unbelievable. Well, they went above the clouds and, and all that, with the moon framed in there and the moon well, lighting the top even, of the clouds. Even with the dragons fighting and then the, the, the evil dragon, the, the white walker dragon having half yeah. of his face cut off and he's still spinning out fire through that po- broken part of his face yeah. was, was awesome. But I mean, just those 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 shots where they're you know they they were they flew up above the clouds and uh, they don't know where the, the you know the, where the the, the uh, zombie dragon is. Yep. The dead dragon, and you know they're just kind of like they kind of hover for a second before they dive back down in the clouds. I was like, wow, I know that looked better than any of the monster footage I saw in the Godzilla King of the Monsters trailer. Um, now I know that's just one brief scene, and you got I haven't seen the movie yet. But I've just said, that's why I said what I saw in the trailer, mm-hmm. because I don't know what, you know, you don't know what's been tweaked, what's not going to be in the finished film, uh, how how much they're going to change it for the finished film, et cetera, et cetera. So that'll have to be judged, you know, on its on its own thing. Mm-hmm. So um, the only thing I hope for any of these movies, I don't I don't care if if, you know, if they keep making these American Godzilla pictures or not. um and they want to have all these crazy monster scenes. Uh, that's fine. You know what I care about is story. What I care about is uh, the quality of the writing. And you know, hopefully, you get decent actors and a decent director, and a director that can handle actors. Because there's some actors that are great when they have a good director. Yeah, a lot of and there's other there's other actors who can walk on set and not leave a dry eye in the house. Yeah, a no lot matter of directors, who's behind the camera. A lot of directors just can't act or uh, can't direct actors. They can shoot beautiful yeah. things, but yeah, that was that was the problem actors. with that was the problem with Skull Island. Is that the director of that film? Uh, I don't know him personally. He might be a great guy. A couple people I know have you know had conversations with him and palled around with him a little bit. But you know, it's like he is a guy that knows how to like. He's cutting action scenes. And he's doing stuff with the camera. He captured he, Vietnam and that that feel of. Uh, he did nothing with the actors, yeah. and the music. The music was so forced. You know, mm. it was kind of ridiculous. Oh, and one thing I wanted to touch on, I had a, I had a thing about uh, about uh, Skull Island where it got to a point where I was saying I was always been respectful in theaters watching movies, even if I was seeing something like Count Yorga Vampire, you know, watching some low budget vampire film. Mm-hmm. You know, I would just watch it like I would watch, you know, Doctor Strangelove. You know, just sit there and just get into the, the, you know, tell me the story. Let's, I'm going to go with you. And at the end, they'll go, yeah, that was all right. Or that was great, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at, at Skull Island, it got to a point where my two friends I went with, Omar and, and Marcus, uh, we were kind of groaning at things and we were laughing and we were having a good time. We we're having a good time with the movie. Uh, not at the movie, but with the movie. But it got to the one point where, Samuel L. Jackson has his standoff with Kong, you know, and he at night and he's holding the torch. Oh yeah, he's he's like you remember glare, that? Yeah, he's remember like that? glaring at. I forget what he says. 
Yeah, he goes, come and get me, you mother effing gorilla or whatever. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Whatever he says. I don't remember. I saw it once. I only saw the movie once. That was enough. I saw it in a theater. Don't need to see it again. Mm-hmm. Um, not because I hated it. Not because I thought it was terrible. It's I don't feel the need. It doesn't. Then that movie did not make me want to revisit it. Mm. I saw it. So we're done. Right. <laughs> no offense to Skull Island. Um, but And I know a guy who went, I bought four copies on DVD or Blu-ray or whatever. I'm like, okay, he's saving for the apocalypse. When the, hope there's electricity to watch those. Um, <laughs> and uh, what, so, okay, so Samuel Jackson is facing off and he's got the torch and he's yelling at Kong and Kong staring at him. When Samuel Jackson raised, and I hadn't seen this movie before. This is my first viewing of the movie. We're seeing it in the afternoon. We got our popcorn. We're not drunk. We're not stoned. <laughs> we're just on. We're just. We're just on ices. We're on a sugar high and uh, sodium and fake butter and popcorn. And Samuel Jackson raises his torch, and I went, "Come on, I'm here. Kill me." Kill me, I'm here! <laughs> Predator, Arnold Schwarzenegger style? Yeah. <laughs> well. I was like, this is like, he's, I go, this director is now, he's referencing Predator. <laughs> he just, at this point, he's just letting the actors do whatever the hell they want. Right, yeah. right. And, you know, and even Sam Jackson kind of like, he kind of just walked through that movie, you know? He just was Sam Jackson. Going like, you know, we got, we got a paycheck. You know, we got a paycheck and a trip to Vietnam. Right. Awesome. Cool. And Hawaii. They shot in Hawaii, too, right? So, you know, so you got that there. And then, you know, contrast that with, you know, like uh, Sam Jackson in, in Captain Marvel, where, you know, he's, if he wasn't in that movie, you know, it would have been, it would have been, it would have, it would have been felt missed. Right. If he wasn't in that movie, because he was, every time he's on screen, he's just like, he's on it. He's on his game. He wanted to be in that movie. He's having a good time. But I don't think uh, I don't think they were really. They're going. Yeah, this is the big gorilla picture. We don't care. It's just kind of sad, but that's the way things go. Well, August, I'd love to keep this going, but it's one o'clock in the morning where I'm at. Right. So um, we can. We'll definitely hook up again. But is there anything you want to plug for the audience before you go? Any any websites? Any books? Anything? I'll be looking for a job. Uh, if anybody's hiring, <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> Uh, anybody wants to hire me to like talk their ear off and put them to sleep, I can I can do that. Well, here I'll plug um, this for you. I bought e- the book E.G. Surai, Masters of Monsters, Master of Monsters, and I, I read it, and it's it's great. So if, oh, thank you, man. So if people are into um, the behind the scenes look into uh, kaiju filmmaking and just sci-fi monster movie filmmaking, E.G. Surai was one of the greats, and August yeah. did a great job. Yeah, he's the guy who was the you know he was the uh, Willis O'Brien of Japan and the Ray Harryhausen. Uh, the George Powell kind of all wrapped up into one. He's the guy that created that whole uh, Japanese uh, special effects techniques of the miniature cities and the and the guys in the monster suits and and uh, was a film innovator and a cinematographer and uh, became the master of monsters. And uh, he died in 1970, but he left a legacy that's still going on now because Godzilla King of the Monsters opens next month. Exactly. And, if it weren't for A.G. Subaraya, who brought Godzilla to life in 1954, physically, um, we wouldn't be talking tonight. We wouldn't be going to see this picture. 100%. All right, August. Thanks, man. Thank you.